all of our methods going forward are going to be to start combining all these different types of technologies. So not just relying on visual surveys, but also combining acoustics as well so that we can try and cover up some of the gaps because none of them are quite perfect on their own. It's really important to be able to build strong relationships because you need to have mutual trust between both parties. Welcome to Coastal Connections, Stories from the Atlantic. I'm your host, Dr. Sandra Eager, and in this volume, we continue to share perspectives and focus on stories of resilience and innovation in Atlantic Canada. Coastal Connections is a production of Coastal Roots Radio, produced in partnership with the University of Guelph and Memorial University of Newfoundland, Grenfell Campus. Throughout the podcast, we have explored many collaborative research projects and innovative solutions across Atlantic Canada. This episode features a partnership between scientists and researchers with the Department of National Defense's Science and Technology Organization, Defense Research and Development Canada, also known as DRDC, as well as Fisheries and Oceans Canada, Transport Canada, Dalhousie University, and industry partners all collaborating in a novel effort to protect whales. Our guests today are experts in underwater sound and whale behavior, and they'll help us understand how the same acoustic detection techniques developed for submarines are now being used to listen for unique whale calls. I'm pleased to welcome our co-host today, Commander Brian May. He's a senior military officer for DRDC, and has worked as a combat systems engineer for the Canadian Forces and Royal Canadian Navy, specializing in submarines. Brian is to thank for connecting us at Coastal Connections with the guests you'll hear from today. This includes his colleague, Dr. Carolyn Binder, and one of their research collaborators, Dr. Sarah Fortune at Dalhousie University. Well, thank you very much, Sandra. I'm glad to be here and uh, I'd like to thank you very much for the opportunity to discuss our efforts to learn more about the effects of military activities on the world's marine wildlife. We know the best way to protect whales is to keep ships and other human activities away from them, but we have to know where they are in order to avoid them. Traditionally, this has meant watching for whales from the surface, which is time-consuming and ineffective, especially for deep-diving species of whales. Carolyn and her team believe the solution may be to use another sense, sound, rather than sight. We'll first hear from Carolyn and Brian about the importance of these operational exercises and some basic concepts on underwater acoustics. So the military uses exercises to orchestrate scenarios that provide training opportunities for its people. In the case of Navy exercises and then trying to train sonar operators, what we are doing is bringing together ships and submarines in close proximity so that when that sonar operator is operating his equipment, there is a submarine there to find. So they can actually see what it looks like to detect a submarine, then track a submarine. During the last uh, two world wars, uh, we had enemy submarines operating off the coast of Canada and should a situation like that arise again in the future, we would certainly not want to go uh, with poor to mediocre sonar operators trying to find uh, those submarines. So we need to practice and train these people to be uh, to be proficient in the best that they can be should their skills be called upon in the future. Hi, I'm Dr. Carolyn Binder. I'm a defense scientist with Defense Research and Development Canada. And my focus area is on underwater acoustics and using sound to find things underwater, whether that's submarines or whales. 
the ocean is a crazy place. There's lots of different noise sources in the ocean, lots of different natural noise sources in the ocean. So without any human added noise, um, if you were just to stick a microphone underwater, which is actually something that we do quite often, um, you'll hear noise from the waves crashing, rain falling, different types of marine life. So you'll hear fish sounds, snapping shrimp, you'll hear whales calling. There's lots of really interesting things in the Arctic. You'll hear ice cracking. Um, then you add in some different human-generated noises. So things like shipping. Shipping adds to the, the background noise, even distant shipping. It raises the sound level. And then you add sonar in there. So sonar is sounds that will be sent out from a ship. Sometimes it's just for navigational purposes, other times looking for submarines. And that tends to be more intense sounds over shorter periods of time. If you're looking for something above water, you know, in your, in your backyard, your eyes are seeing that using reflected light from the sun. You can't look into the water and see a submarine. Radar doesn't work underwater, so you need to use sound uh, as the medium that you're projecting through the water to reflect off an object and then have that sound reflect back to you so that you can find something. So basically there are two broad categories of sonars in use. The first we'll talk about is passive sonar, which is just listening. You have a microphone underwater that is listening to sound. It then turns that into electrical signals, which it puts into the headphones of a sonar operator. Active sonar, on the other hand, is where you are actually producing sound, you're pinging into the water, and then you're listening to the reflections of that uh, sound off of an underwater object like a submarine. And I guess the parallel for that would be in the natural world where you have dolphins or bats that produce a noise that reflects off of the prey they're trying to find, and bats then use that to find insects, or dolphins use that reflected sound to find, uh, to find fish to eat. Carolyn briefly reviews two types of shipping noise and compares them with active sonar. So shipping contributes to the noise underwater in, in a couple different ways. One is this like kind of persistent drone. It's just essentially raising the background level of sound like fairly consistently. So you can hear shipping sound coming from like, even across the ocean basin, basically. It's almost like having a fan running in the background. Maybe you can tune it out. Um, more close shipping, we end up treating kind of like if a whale is out and there's a ship driving by, it'd be much more like a car going by in some ways. It's this more continuous type of noise um, compared to, to sonar in a shipping lane, like in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, where people often care about shipping because of right whales. These individual ships coming along will be relatively loud in a kind of a distinct place that they're coming from. Um, so there's two different types of shipping noise there. Whereas active sonar tends to be much louder um, compared to, to shipping, it's these shorter bursts of loud sound. With that brief primer on sound in the oceans, let's get to the whales. Carolyn provides a brief history of how whales have been detected in the past and why sound can be so much more useful, accurate, and also facilitate proactive planning. So the Navy and the Air Force have been using sonar for a long time, like since World War II. But in the early to mid-90s, there was increasing evidence that the use of sonar was causing negative impacts to whales. So things right from death and strandings to hearing damage to behavioral changes. And so there were some different efforts back in the late 90s, early 2000s to really start to understand 
the impacts of sonar on whales. And out of that came a lot of different policies that are in place now with the Navy and the Air Force. Anytime that they go out and do sonar use, they have to do things like search the area visually to see if there are any whales prior to using their active sonars. That can be a relatively time intensive effort, especially if you're thinking about an aircraft that would fly up somewhere like Greenwood that takes an hour or something to fly to where they're going to do their exercise. They have to spend 10 minutes looking for whales before they use their sonars and they have maybe total six hours actually to do their exercise. And oh no, they saw a whale. <laughs> and so they have to move their sonar location. So it ends up becoming quite a time intensive effort. And so this whole program started as a way, mostly because the Air Force actually was getting some newer sonar sources that were gonna be louder and in a different frequency. So they were gonna be lower pitched than the previous sonar sources. Um, that they were using, which means that the sounds will travel longer distances. And so that really spurred looking at what are the impacts on these whales, kind of made us take a, a step back and say, okay, are we doing enough in these areas where there are some really sensitive species? What can we be doing better? And more importantly, how can we automate some of this stuff? So we're not just relying on an operator to go out and look and spend a significant amount of time just to find out that they had planned their sonar exercise in the middle of a big whale migration area, for example. And so what we're doing is um, trying to move a lot of those efforts from that kind of operation stage into the planning stage so that air crews and ships are going to places where we're fairly certain that there won't be at least a large collection of whales. We're going to try and target areas where, where we expect there to be less impact. So this marine mammal research is important to the Royal Canadian Navy and the Royal Canadian Air Force for, I guess, three reasons. And one would be it's the right thing to do. Two would be uh, to recognize that as a branch of the federal government, we have a duty to be an active and effective contributor to the responsible stewardship of Canadian resources, and that includes its wildlife. And I guess the third reason would be that uh, that right thing to do is entrenched in law in that uh, Section 32 of the Species at Risk Act says that no one shall harm or harass a species at risk. Our program has been looking at a lot of different technologies in terms of um, automated detection, whether it's visual or underwater sound detections, as well as pulling in information on historical habitat usage so we can figure out where you expect whales to be at what time of year and do things as well like pull in real-time information. We can start making use of some of the, the technologies that have been evolving on their own, not anything to do with defense, things like phone-based apps for doing things like whale sightings. So we can get real-time whale sightings that are being brought into our information and planning purposes. All of our methods going forward is going to be to start combining all these different types of technologies. So not just relying on visual surveys, but also combining acoustics as well so that we can try and cover up some of the gaps because none of them are quite perfect on their own. The ultimate goal of this program is to create a real-time decision-making tool to help understand how whales are using the oceans and how to avoid them. Various technologies and expertise from acoustics, math, engineering, and biology are all needed. These data will feed into a simple interface, like a heat map, that will then be used in a risk-based analysis to decide if the sonar exercise is worth the risk. This final product will also be of value beyond military and security applications, as it will be available for other purposes. 
This might include species at risk monitoring or learning more about the behavior and life history of more elusive deep diving whales. So I think that acute effects, so like those really short-term immediate effects that are caused by sounds, sonar, because it's so much louder, is going to be worse because it can do things like cause hearing damage in whales, for example. Background shipping noise doesn't really cause that level of hearing damage. It'll do some things like mask other types of sounds that the whales might be interested in hearing, predators coming for them, or even some types of communication between individual whales. Both sonar and shipping noise can mask that. There's also been evidence in the literature that just having this persistent drone of background noise from shipping is causing increased stress in whales. So they've done things like measure stress hormones in whales and have noticed that they have much more elevated levels of, of stress hormone compared to even 10, 20 years ago. And that seems to be directly correlated with an increase in human generated noise. So in order to automate whale detection, we need to learn more about how whales are currently studied. And since they can hold their breath for a while and aren't at the surface for very long, I imagine this to be quite the endeavor. I'm Sarah Fortune. I'm assistant professor in the Department of Oceanography at Dalhousie. And I'm also the Canadian Wildlife Federation Chair of Large Whale Conservation. My general area of research is marine ecology, so very broadly. And I generally study predator-prey interactions, so sort of the feeding behavior of large whales. I sort of draw on various disciplines in my work, so I incorporate of course, like ecology, biology, physiology, and oceanography. So I, I mostly utilize biological and a little bit of physical oceanography in my work. And that's because to study what the whales are feeding on, there's, you know, subsurface organisms. And so we need to use these oceanographic tools to accurately measure and identify them. Sarah tells me that she's motivated by the interesting puzzle of why some of the largest animals on Earth prey on some of the smallest. I ask her how these interests feed into the research program with DRDC. I really liked the idea behind the tool and sort of how comprehensive it was. So the vision for it was to include more than just information about, you know, where whales are located, what species they are, and, and things like that. What they wanted to include was also information about sort of the environment in which the whales are living in, if they have prey available, and, and potentially are displaying a bit more of a sensitive behavior that the military would want to avoid disturbing. And, and they also wanted to get a sense for what types of responses a whales would display at different amplitudes or volumes of, of sonar activity. And so getting a sense for, you know, how they could potentially use like the lowest amplitude or the quietest sonar possible so that they have uh, less impacts. Sarah also has a personal motivation for engaging with this research, and she shares some of her previous experience working in Nunavut being interested in acoustic disturbance or human disturbance in whales. It's really stemmed from experience that I had in the field with bowhead whales working up in Cumberland Sound, Nunavut. So this is an area where there's very little vessel traffic. For most of the time that we're making our whale observations, we don't see a single boat. And this is completely opposite to 
you know, the North Atlantic Ocean, where we have these very urban whales, like North Atlantic right whales, that encounter ships of all sizes at all times of day. Things so you sort of have a bit of a quieter, more pristine environment, and then more of an urban, louder environment in the south. What I ended up finding in the field was that bowheads were completely different. They're the level of habituation that maybe a more urban whale like right whales had was not present for bowheads so they would noticeably change their behavior when our vessel approached them so really just engaging the engines having that vessel noise seemed to really elicit a behavioral response which i wasn't expecting because i wanted to see like what is their natural behavior and sort of when and where and how are they feeding and I found that just by us being there with the boat, we were disturbing that behavior. So we couldn't actually, you know, measure it. So personally for myself, I was really interested in knowing more about sort of our role in disturbance in terms of humans and underwater noise generation and, and sort of how pervasive this is. And the reason why I think that's important is because Although to some degree, the Arctic may be considered like a pristine environment, it is undergoing rapid change. And as we have more you know, open water areas, particularly during the summer, there's increases in vessel traffic. And so if we can sort of get ahead of things now to understand concretely what the impacts of underwater noise are for Arctic whales, then we can also help you know, managers make informed science decisions about how to mitigate impacts from from vessel noise and and things like echo sounders or uh, military sonar activity. Anthropogenic noise is human-made noise, and underwater noise has increased significantly over the past fifty years or so, as a result of increased seismic exploration, military and commercial sonars, and maritime transportation. So why is it important to understand how human-made noise, such as vessel noise, can impact whales? Sarah adds to Carolyn's previous comments. Why behavior matters is also, I guess, an important question because um, we talk about behavioral disturbance. And so that you know indicates that it's undesirable to alter a whale's behavior. And I would say that there's you know certain behaviors that are very important to the survival of an animal. So one of those is definitely feeding. For some species and some populations, they only feed during a really small window of time. So some whales feed just during or mostly during the summer and they fast during the winter. And that means that they need to get the bulk of their energy for the entire year during a few summer months. So if if we were to go out in our boat and disturb a whale and you know, that resulted in the whale getting less food to eat that day. It's actually a bigger problem than just one day of less food. And then there's other behaviors that are also sensitive. So things like mothers uh, nursing their calves uh, is an activity that we wouldn't want to disturb. Um, of course, we want to make sure that calves can get all of that um, energy-rich uh, milk during that short nursing period. So how do you study whale behavior and how has it evolved with technological developments? Sarah gives us a whale research 101 from focal follows to biologgers, also known as whale Fitbits. 
and even how to eavesdrop on the sounds that whales are experiencing. As you can imagine, probably studying whale behavior is a little bit tricky because, you know, these are animals, you know, they're marine mammals, they do need to surface to breathe, but they can also hold their breath for a really long time. And so some of the large whales like bowhead whales or humpbacks can dive for a long time. Bowheads can dive for longer than an hour. So that means that if you're studying them from a boat, uh, you have like a very small window of time to capture the behavior of the whale. And most of what's happening is, you know, a couple hundred meters below surface even. So what do we use as researchers to document behavior? Well, there's a couple of different approaches. One is boat-based and it's called a uh, focal follow. And so essentially you will identify a whale of interest. Maybe it has a unique marking on its body or on its tail that helps you easily identify it in the field. And then you're going to basically like follow that whale for as long as you can. And as you're following it, you're recording the location, the time, any surface behaviors, the environmental conditions. And you also might make note about other animals around. So a common thing to note are whether seabirds are in the area and whether seabirds are maybe diving close to where the whales are. Because often many seabirds feed on the same species that the whales are targeting. Um, so that's a focal follow. And they're very informative um, because you have sort of the path of the whale, you know when and where it was in a particular spot and generally what its behavior was. But a lot of the behavioral observations are sort of inferred behaviors. So we can say, okay, this whale, when it went on a dive, it lifted its tail really high out of the water. And so that indicates to me as a researcher that that whale went on a really deep dive. And based on what I know about this area and this time of year, their food is typically concentrated at the sea bottom. So I'm gonna infer that this dive was likely a feeding dive, but we infer that we don't know that for sure because we can't see to depth, we can't follow that whale underwater. With the exception of using biologgers attached to whales using suction cups. These tags have many of the same sensors that are in our phones, actually like kind of like a Fitbit attached to a whale. And it tells us sort of how deep that whale dives, how fast it's swimming, whether it's rolling onto its side. It, it basically gives us a picture in addition to using these biologgers, we also will use aerial drones. And depending on the water clarity, drones can be actually like quite helpful to sort of monitor a whale subsurface. If you have clear water, like we do in the Arctic, we can follow a whale that's maybe 20 meters subsurface. We can see its behavior in real time. So it's actually incredibly helpful and informative for focal follows. But whale research isn't just about whales. Sarah tells me that additional environmental information and data relating to other species also help decipher whale behavior. Another thing that we do is we sample the water near where the whales are diving to get a better sense for whether a dive was really reflective of a foraging dive or not. So if we can sample the water and determine whether there's whale food present, or absent, then we can also sort of narrow down what the whale's behavior likely was. And so for this, we'll use sophisticated fish finders. 
the same type of technology that fishers use, using sound to visualize schools of fish or aggregations of small crustaceans called zooplankton. Another thing we'll use are zooplankton nets. So we'll basically just send this really fine mesh net down to just above the sea bottom and then we'll tow it straight up to the surface and we collect all the little critters in there and we can pretty quickly get a sense for whether there's a large enough number of zooplankton to make it worthwhile for a whale to feed or not. And more recently, we're using an underwater vision profiler, which is like a very cool technology. And this instrument essentially takes pictures as you send the instrument down to the sea bottom. With those images, you can identify what species of zooplankton were present and how many of them were at a particular depth. It's very data heavy because you've like lots and lots of images to go through, but you have this really detailed picture of where the food was, what the quality and quantity of the food was as well. So by combining these different techniques and technologies, we can gain like a pretty comprehensive understanding of the whale's behavior. So we've already heard our guests reference a number of different species of whales. Sarah explains two main types of whales and why that matters as it relates to responding to sound. There's generally two types of whales. There's toothed whales, which includes like sperm whales, pilot whales, and these whales use echolocation to find their prey. So they generate noise and that noise will bounce off an object underwater and it will like echo back to them. And with that echo, that return sound, they can identify whether there was a prey item that they detected. So echolocation is a vital function for tooth whales to find food. And it means that if there's human activities that are loud, that generate quite a bit of noise underwater, that could potentially impact the ability of a tooth whale to use echolocation to find its prey. So that, of course, would be a pretty large problem. And Marla Holt from NOAA found that vessel noise can impact the feeding success of southern resident killer whales. So presumably there's potentially some like acoustic masking that occurs or sort of this increased vessel noise can impact their hunting. It's also possible that the physical presence of a vessel alters their hunting as well. There's a growing body of literature that is showing impacts in terms of feeding for tooth whales. Well, the large whales are baleen whales, with the exception of sperm whales that are tooth whales. And baleen whales have these long plates of baleen comprised of keratin. So it's the same protein that makes our hair and our fingernails. And whales use this baleen kind of like a fishing net will basically like open their mouths and their throats really wide and let in a bunch of water and fish or krill. And then they'll contract their throat and that will push the water out between their plates of baleen. And on the inside of the baleen are all of these fringes, sort of like fine hair-like material. And that fine hair will keep the prey inside their mouth. So that's their feeding strategy. They don't use echolocation. And there's quite a bit of discussion or debate about how baleen whales actually find their prey. But one thing that has been found is that when subject to lots of underwater noise, 
baleen whales will adjust the amplitude of their calls. So baleen whales are known to make vocalizations to stay in contact with other related individuals or other whales of the same population. For example, humpback whales will sing very beautiful mating songs in the winter to attract a female. And so it's important that, you know, conspecifics or other individuals of the same species and population can be in communication with each other and they can have a conversation and know where each other are. When they are exposed to loud sounds, say from shipping, um, whales will try to, you know, yell or they'll speak louder. And it's kind of like if you were in a crowded restaurant and you had to speak really loud to your dates or something. But, you know, you can only do that up until a certain point. If you're at a rock concert or something, it might not matter how loud you try to speak. Your partner may not hear you. And so there does come a point where whales just stop altogether trying to communicate with each other. Increased underwater noise can threaten toothed whales' ability to echolocate and find prey, while it can make it more difficult for baleen whales to maintain communication with others in their same family or population. So if we now combine our knowledge of sound in the ocean and whale behavior, we can imagine what is perhaps needed to automate some of this data collection. My mind immediately goes to underwater swimming robots. Here are a few examples of sophisticated technologies that detect and monitor whales. So robots swimming underwater, that's a perfect way of describing <laughs> what we're doing. So we have a couple different technologies that we're working with. So some that are more mobile. We did this for um, the Cutlass Fury anti-submarine warfare exercise back in September um, here on the Scotian shelf. We sent an underwater robot out called a glider that just kind of sails up and down through the water column and it's listening the whole time and it has onboard detectors so it listens to the sounds that are coming in something different from the background sound and then kind of looks through its library and says is this um, a whale call and if it does the next time the glider's up at the surface it'll send a satellite alert back through a satellite system to somebody that's monitoring at the shore base station that can pass along that information um, to people who are running the sonar exercises to say, oh, we detected what we thought was a whale over there, so maybe be extra cautious. Um, and then you can start building up a pattern of like, oh, there were lots of whale detections here, maybe we should move a sonar exercise. So that's one, one type of technology we've been working with. Very similar to that, um, a robot, but more on the surface of the water, it's called an uncrewed surface vehicle. Um, we trialed this uh, out on the West Coast. It's powered largely by solar panels on it, and it's a really cool piece of technology because it can be out for a long time. And it tows along behind it a towed array, which is just a, a string of these underwater microphones called hydrophones. So that not only can you detect the presence of whales, but you can also get an idea of what direction the whale calls are coming from. So that you aren't just saying, oh, there's a whale somewhere in this detection radius, which couldn't be up to like tens of kilometers, you can say it's in this radius and it's coming from that direction. And it's actually using that same library of detectors um, as the glider did and sends alerts back. We also have um, some stationary buoys, one deployed out on the West Coast off of British Columbia in kind of a traditional sonar operating area for the Navy. And it has these underwater microphones 
constantly listening. So that one's in place, doesn't move around, and it's out for about a year at a time. So it's just listening the whole time and we'll send satellite alerts back when it detects whales and we'll be able to get all of the acoustic recordings back at the end of the year and uh, comb through them and make sure that it's doing as good of a job as we thought. As we hear about all of these different technologies, methods, and approaches to detecting whale sounds and understanding their behavior, it's important to remember that the combination of approaches will depend on who is asking the questions and what those questions are. DRDC and the Royal Canadian Navy are providing support to Dalhousie University and DFO to look at the behavioral response to whales in the Arctic. We understand less about the oceanography of the Arctic Ocean than we do of the Atlantic and the Pacific where we've operated a lot in the past. So we need to go up there and better understand the oceanography, better understand how that sound propagates, and better understand the pattern of life of the wildlife that are there so that we can, in the future, effectively use those sonar systems, but in a responsible manner that is also compliant with the law. These will be controlled exposure experiments where Dalhousie and Fisheries and Oceans researchers will tag whales using suction cup tags that do things like measure the sound as a whale might hear it, so right at the whale itself, and their fine scale movement. So when we play these kind of controlled doses of sonar to the whales, how the whales are responding. Does it change their diving behavior? Do they stop echolocating? Do they swim away? Um, we can start answering lots of those different types of questions. What we're doing is building an experiment in an environment where we have few human noises or there's very little underwater noise. And so if we are to introduce noise and record the behavior of a whale, we can feel pretty confident that the response of that whale is related to the sound that we've introduced into the environment. We will attach these suction cup tags to the whales and allow the animal to swim freely, to do its regular behaviors undisturbed for a period of time. And so that gives us sort of a baseline information about natural behavior and, and hopefully some feeding activities and things like that. And then we'll introduce sound into the environment using an underwater, a submersible speaker. And from that speaker, we're playing military sonar. And we're playing it at a very, very low volume. And then slowly over time, we sort of increase the volume of that sound. All the while, we have our whale swimming around with its sensor on it, its biologger that's monitoring its behavior. The goal of the study is to see whether the whale is doing the same thing it was at the start before the sound was introduced as it was doing later on in the study once the sound was introduced. We also don't know how sonar impacts the prey of the whales. Do the fish respond to sonar? Do they change their you know, distribution, sort of the areas in which they're found? Do they alter the depths at which they reside? Um, these are questions that we're also hoping to answer. Quite a bit of research has been done using playback experiments, particularly on sperm and northern bottlenose whales, and they found that sonar disrupts feeding. It seems that it has something to do with the frequency of the sonar, and that the whales associate it as a predator. One study demonstrates this by using sonar playbacks as well as killer whale calls, 
and it was found that both of these stimuli elicited a similar response from the whales. As we've learned through other episodes of Coastal Connections Stories from the Atlantic, research activities should benefit coastal communities, and these communities should be engaged early and continuously throughout the process. This team plans to work with northern communities in order to move towards studying bowhead whales to proactively prepare for increased shipping traffic and sonar in the Arctic and equip communities with the knowledge necessary to contribute to decision-making on these activities. We want to have an open dialogue with northern communities. We want to go out, we want to have those face-to-face chats with them um, to be able to have a real discussion about what their concerns are and figure out how we can address them, how members of those communities can take part in our research if they want to um, and have their, their voice and their concerns heard. I think what we're hoping to do is take the data that we have this year and show what all the safety measures that we did and present it to them in a way that's open and transparent and say, look, this is what we're hoping to do with bowhead whales in the future. It's important for communities to know whether these activities, like military activities, could potentially impact the animals that are of cultural and traditional value to them. So with the start of this study, we are focusing on species that are not harvested. Um, They're not of cultural or traditional significance, but it allows us the opportunity to really refine our methods and, and develop a robust study that we can apply more widely to Arctic species of significance. I know Northern communities have huge concerns about human generated noise in in the Arctic. They're seeing changes already in habitat usage of whales that aren't coming to areas where they would have historically come into. It seems to be linked with increased shipping traffic in, in certain areas. And so there's already a lot of concern about that. There's some research going into just what shipping traffic is doing. And the Navy will, as the waters open up in the Arctic and there's less ice, will have to be going up and patrolling in the north more. They'll likely be using sonar in the north. And we want to lay the groundwork now and do the research now to figure out what those impacts are gonna be so that when the Navy is starting to go up and use sonar in the Arctic, um, they're doing it using environmental policies that are science-based. Canada has invested in whale research through the Ocean Protection Plan, with a particular focus on critically endangered North Atlantic right whales, as well as Southern resident killer whales, which Carolyn describes as having driven the field and has provided her team with innovative technologies, as well as helped her to partner with other departments and agencies on automatic detection work. Commander May walks us through an example of this technology in action. A fantastic example would be in 2019 when we were doing some active sonar work at the Nanus Range, which is just north of Nanaimo on Vancouver Island. And within the sensors that we had on the bottom of the Strait of Georgia was software from JASCO Applied Sciences. And one of our sensors detected vocalizations of a pod of uh, southern resident killer whales transiting down from the north. What that did is it gave us an early detection opportunity that allowed us time to shut the entire active sonar trial down, shut all the equipment off so that we weren't making any noise. We were then able to monitor them passively as they swam south past the range. 
Once they had cleared to the south and we could no longer hear them anymore and we knew that they were gone, we were able to turn the system back on again and continue on with our work. But that's a fantastic example where that early detection provided us with the opportunity to shut our systems down, to not harm the animals, and then to, to recommence what we were doing 45 minutes later uh, once they were gone. Carolyn illustrates another impact that this research is already beginning to have on decision making. Fisher's notions, for example, has made a big shift in the last little while with the North Atlantic right whale. Up until recently, they only closed down fisheries based on visual sightings. And within the last few years, they started shutting down fisheries based on acoustic detections. And that was a, a big shift. So they have um, some different boys around the Gulf of St. Lawrence that they use to know when there are whales swimming up into the area. And all that type of information and research that's been very useful for monitoring those whales will feed right into our decision app going forward. So now that we've learned about sound, whales, designing behavioral studies, and the latest and greatest underwater robots, Sarah puts all of this technology and data collection into perspective for us. Then, Carolyn will connect how this work will feed data into the app being designed in-house at DRDC to inform decisions in the future. Why it's important to measure both passive and active acoustics is because we can generate basically a curve, like a, a sound curve, which can tell us at what volume of sound or amplitude of sound was there a behavioral reaction. And then this can tell D&D, okay, below this threshold, at this distance, we should be able to avoid an adverse response or a behavioral disturbance. So it gives them a very quantitative metric that they can use in the field in real time. We're building a decision tool, a decision app that can pull together all of the different types of information that we have. So it's doing things like drawing from the real-time detections from the systems that we have out. It's using the historical information for where you expect whales to be. That's kind of where we're starting now. Eventually it will do things like pull in information from whale watching apps. So when people are out on the water cruising around and they, they see a whale, they can record that in, in an app. And that information we're going to be able to pull into our decision tool as well. So we can get that real-time feed of information. And we use all those different types of information sources and combine them with how we expect the sound to travel underwater for a sonar. So we can figure out if we do a sonar exercise here, what's kind of the range of impact and see how that overlaps with where we expect to see the whales to figure out what the risk of causing hearing damage or a behavioral response to the whale is. And then that information can be passed to somebody who's making a decision about where to do a sonar exercise. So that they can say, oh, we're not likely to see any whales here. Let's go do the sonar exercise here. Let's plan it for here. Um, if there's a possibility of seeing whales and maybe a color it yellow and say, let's do some extra things like make sure that we're, we do all that, those visual searches. And then like a critical habitat for whales will be colored red. Don't go do the sonar exercise there. So we're pulling in all this information from all these different collaborators. But what we're hoping to do is also be able to share this decision tool and the results from it going forward too. So we won't just be pulling information and we can, we can share that information too, whether it's with places like Transport Canada 
um, that are making decisions about uh, vessel slowdowns or areas with restriction um, or Fisheries and Oceans Canada where they're talking about closing fisheries. We're hoping to, to share all that information with them as well. Benefits of highly collaborative projects include the sharing and dissemination of data and information with collaborators and partners so that each set of expertise and interests can ask their own research questions and produce their own relevant outputs. Sarah shares some final thoughts on what has made this forward-thinking project so successful. This project is deeply collaborative. Um, and I think it's only because of those collaborations that we've been able to get to the point where we are, like now ac actively in the field collecting data. So we have critical partnerships with researchers that, that have different areas of expertise. So it's really important to be able to build strong relationships because you need to have mutual trust between both parties. So in terms of the fishing industry, you know, they want to make sure that the work that we do, for example, playing sonar noise in the area where they're fishing isn't going to impact their catch. And then the really key part to all of this is having someone from like Defense Canada to tell us, well, what do we need to measure? What sounds, you know, what volumes do we need? What frequencies of sound? What type of data do we need to collect so that you have the information that you need to make the necessary decisions to mitigate impacts? And so that's where having these strong partnerships with D&D &D is so valuable because without it, like we wouldn't necessarily be able to translate our research into sort of a conservation outcome. Commander May's final thoughts build on the importance of collaboration and shares an opportunity that DRDC is looking forward to in the future. The key value to the collaborative relationship that defense research has with Dalhousie University is that DRDC doesn't have experts in marine biology. That's what Dal brings to the, to the, to the relationship. Conversely, DRDC has experts in military sonar systems like Carolyn, and DRDC has small, low-power, towable sonar sources uh, that can be used during these joint experiments. You know, our key industry partners at this point are JASCO Applied Sciences in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, who have that uh, sonar database of vocalizations that allow us to uh, specifically identify vocalizations to, in some cases, the exact pod. Um, the other uh, super interesting thing, and, and Carolyn discussed it, was the solar, what we nicknamed the Solar Powered Surfboard by Open Ocean Robotics in Victoria, BC. That's the vessel we're looking to in the, in the future uh, harden so that we can use it in more severe environments like Baffin Bay and actually have it monitor the migration of the species through that body of water throughout the year. So going forward, one of the opportunities that we're exploring is to work with First Nations to put the smart boy in particular on the West Coast uh, in the water near a First Nations community. And we're excited about that because it'll give us the opportunity to, to put this Western science acoustic gathered data together with traditional knowledge. Today we heard how submarine finding technology is being used to study whales in order to better protect them and that an innovative and collaborative cross-sector initiative is underway to learn more about species at risk, to avoid and adapt military activities moving forwards, 
and to better understand how whales might be impacted by increased shipping traffic in the Arctic. By using a variety of technologies and methods simultaneously, better science-based decisions can lead to enhanced protection for whales. Please join us for our final two episodes of Stories from the Atlantic, where we learn about eduoptimumk, or two-eyed seeing, from a few different perspectives. Thanks for joining us. Coastal Connections is a production of Coastal Roots Radio through partnership with the University of Guelph and Memorial University of Newfoundland Grenfell Campus. To connect with the people you've heard from on this podcast, check out the show notes or connect with us online through Twitter at Resilience Rural or at Coastal underscore Roots. Coastal Roots Radio is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Environmental Policy Institute at Grenfell Campus, and the Rural Resilience Research Group, led by Dr. Kelly Vaughden.